The mystery of the dinosaurs is one that confronts young Earth creationists, old Earth creationists, and Darwinian evolutionists alike. Now, in another episode, I've explained why I don't think old Earth creationism and Darwinian evolution holds water from a Christian perspective. I don't think it's biblical, so I'm not going to address that now. So really, what I'm going to do in this episode is unpack the idea of dinosaurs from a biblical perspective. Now, dinosaurs have always been really, really fascinating to me. As a boy, I remember being in third grade, just I was like the go-to guy for dinosaur info. I even wrote a little book about dinosaurs in third grade. But I remember even then that a lot of my ideas about what happened to them, where they went, how long that all took, it was very muddled. And as I grew, as I learned about historical science and the different theories that are out there, I was very excited to learn that there are people out there who actually believe that dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible. And so I've been looking into that now for decades. But the question confronts us, is this just wishful thinking? Are these passages that we're looking at today, are there better explanations for these beasts that the Bible seems to describe that we would call dinosaurs? Are there better explanations? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedekase. I am a former pastor and missionary, and now I'm the president and executive director of an organization called the Think Institute. We exist to help believers, especially Christian men, to lead their families in explaining, sharing, and defending the Christian worldview. That's what we're all about. I'm a guy who used to defend my faith the completely wrong way until the Lord changed my attitude and my approach. And now I help Christian laymen, guys who aren't pastors, but who want to lead their families and make an impact in the gospel in their local areas, at work, and in their family, I help them answer the world's questions with confidence from the Bible. So here's a question. Are there really descriptions of dinosaurs in the Bible? Before we really jump in, I want to just let you know, if you're watching on Facebook or LinkedIn, what you need to do if you want to comment is go to StreamYard.com slash Facebook or StreamYard.com slash LinkedIn and enter your permissions there so that StreamYard and Facebook recognize you, know who you are, then you can comment, and I'll try to get to your questions and comments at the end. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, you can go to joel at thethink.institute. I'm happy to do my best to answer any questions that you send me that way. Okay, so are there really descriptions of dinosaurs in the Bible? Now, in an older version of this show, if you want to know what happened to the dinosaurs, you want to know what does the Bible have to say about it, this episode is for you. And if you've got inquisitive minds in your life, these could be your own kids or your coworkers, maybe it's your wife, it could be a skeptical neighbor. But this episode is going to be for you as well. It's going to help you unpack what the Bible says and be able to answer with confidence, hey, this is what the Bible actually says about dinosaurs. Because you would think, as something as cool as dinosaurs, you would think that they'd be mentioned in the Bible, right? If they did survive past the flood, you would think that they'd be mentioned in there. And today we're going to see that they are. In this episode, we're going to look at four passages that could be describing dinosaurs. I personally think that they are. I'm going to let you be the judge. But here are the questions that we're going to ask specifically in this episode. What's the best explanation for what happened to the dinosaurs, given the biblical timeline? Did all the dinosaurs die out in the flood? 
Is the behemoth in Job 40 a dinosaur? Is it a sauropod? Is Leviathan in Job 41 and Psalm 104 and Isaiah 27, is that a chronosaurus? Is it an alligator? What is it? We're going to look at what is the fiery flying serpent described throughout the Old Testament, and then what was the katos that swallowed Jonah? The katos. That might be a term you've never heard before. And then finally, we'll look at what are some arguments against the supposed dinosaurs in the Bible. Now, if you're intrigued by this topic, if you want to learn more, have great discussions with other like-minded Christian laymen who are on the same journey that you're on, you need to know about our online community. This is the group where you can discuss and learn from over 700 others who are on the exact same journey you're on. Every single day, we're finding answers and discussing important questions and sharing resources that are going to help you understand and live out God's unique calling and ministry for your life as a worldview leader. I'm going to tell you how to get access to that at the end of this show. So let's go ahead and let's dive into these passages. Now, I've got some notes I'm going to be sharing on the screen. If you're watching, if you're listening later, I'm going to be dropping some resources in the show notes. But let's go ahead and get started, and let's look at these four key passages. But before we do, let's talk about what would have happened to the dinosaurs given a biblical timeline. When I say biblical timeline, I'm talking about a young earth timeline. And I don't even really like the term young earth. You might know this about me. The reason I don't like young earth is because the earth is as old as anything else in the universe. It's not like the universe is 13 billion years old, but the earth is only 10,000 years old. Au contraire, it's probably more like the whole enchilada is probably about 10,000 or really probably more like 7,000 years old. So when we say young earth, we're really talking about young in comparison to the deep time, old earth, old cosmos, uh, cosmology of like the evolutionary Darwinian timescale. So given a young earth timescale, what would have happened to the dinosaurs? One thing we know is they would have been created on day six of creation. At least the land animals would. And technically, dinosaurs are land animals. The sea creatures, they would have been on day five. So we're going to look at at least one today that was probably created on day five. And then the same for the flying reptiles, the flying serpents. Those would have been pterosaurs, pterodactyls. Those would have been created on day five as well when God created the flying creatures. So then what happened to them? Given a biblical cosmology and a young earth timeline, they would have been brought onto Noah's Ark. And then after the flood, what would have happened to them? Because if they made it onto the, onto the Ark, then they would have survived. Well, most likely the atmosphere and the climate after the flood probably dramatically changed. In fact, we've got pretty good evidence for this. There was an ice age and then our climate today, and we've been able to trace back climate change. Everyone talks about climate change nowadays, but we've been able to trace that back over several centuries. And the fact is the climate has been changing. When animals are created to live in a certain environment, let's say an antediluvian type of environment, which was probably warmer, the air quality was probably different. What happens is after the flood, you've got animals who are created to live in certain environments who, if they can't migrate and find those environments again, what's going to happen? They're going to die off. That likely happened with the dinosaurs. One thing we're not going to talk about in this episode, but which I encourage you to look into more, is the evidence of dinosaurs cohabiting with people. Cohabiting might not be the right word. Living alongside people throughout history. 
um, talking about dragon legends, things like that. We're not going to get into that in this episode, but it is worth looking into. But uh, today we're just looking at the evidence from scripture. So let's go ahead and dive in and let's see if some of these animals survived and if they were recorded in scripture. Now, the very first passage we're going to look at is Job 40. Job 40 is one of my favorites. This Once I found out about Job 40, it blew my mind as a young man. I think I was probably 15 years old, something like that, when I discovered it. And man, reading about this creature has just been so encouraging to me. And I think it's going to be encouraging to you if you're looking for ways to defend your faith, if you're looking for ways to defend your uh, young earth cosmology. So what's going on in Job 40? To set up the conversation that's happening here. The Lord is speaking with Job and Job has been suffering, man. Job has been going through it. His children have died. He's been incredibly sick. Satan is putting him through the ringer. That's really what's going on. And his friends who are not very good friends are essentially blaming Job. And Job is defending himself. He's saying, look, I'm not guilty of these things that you're accusing me of. I'm I'm really not. And uh, I don't deserve to have this happen to me. We get this back and forth for 38 chapters. And then the Lord actually shows up and the Lord speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, literally out of a hurricane. And here's what he says. First, in chapter 38, God starts going through and describing all these natural processes. Job, can you make the sunrise? Job, do you know where the treasury of the snow is hidden? Job, do you keep the stars in the sky? Are you overseeing the stars in the constellations like Orion? And of course, the answer to all these questions is no. Well, then in chapter 39, the Lord starts listing animals, and he lists and describes in vivid, epic detail. He talks about the wild ox. He talks about horses. He talks about lions. These are all real world animals. And then in chapter 40, right in that string of real world animals, that God is saying, look, Job, can you provide for all these animals? I can. Then Job is uh, confronted by this description of the behemoth. Now, what is the behemoth? Whatever it is, it's big. Why do we know it's big? Well, from its description, but also the very fact that it's called behemoth. Behemoth is a plural noun. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but one thing I do know about Hebrew is that sometimes in Hebrew, a plural noun is used to describe something big and grand. I'll give you two examples. One, in the Bible, in the Hebrew, the sky is described as the heavens. And I know that there are you could say there are three heavens. There's um, the sky, there's what we would consider to be outer space, and then there's the heaven of heavens where God dwells. But the idea is you look up at the sky, and we even say this today, don't we? We talk about, you know, there's clear skies today. We're not saying that there are multiple skies. We're just saying we're using a plural noun to describe something big and grand. The word for God, Elohim in the original language, is a plural noun that literally means gods, but of course we know there is only one God. The same Bible that calls God Elohim also says there is one God. and But it's a plural noun being used to describe something, in this case someone, big 
and grand. Now here you've got this plural noun to describe behemoth. Behemoth is big. Behemoth is grand. And they use a plural noun to describe him. Let's see what it says. Here we have Job chapter 40, verses 15 to 24. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. Literally, the Hebrew there is with you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For, the sh for his shade, the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? So at first blush, you read this and you say, well, that sounds like it's describing maybe a hippopotamus. In fact, I remember reading the Bible when I was a kid, certain translations, I don't remember which one, maybe the NIV would say, behemoth, the little footnote at the bottom, it would say, possibly a hippopotamus. Let me tell you something. A hippopotamus is big. A hippopotamus is strong. But a hippopotamus does not have a tail like a cedar. Last time I checked, there's no hippopotamus that has that. But you know what does have a tail like a cedar? A sauropod. A sauropod like a brachiosaurus or an apatosaurus has a tail stiff as a cedar. And you know, as I was talking about this with my son this morning or with my kids, my son Jacob brought something up. When we first discovered dinosaurs in the modern era in the 1800s, the general conception was that they dragged their tails behind them. They were seen as these big lumbering, doofy creatures that had tails that, that uh, swung low and dragged on the ground. Well, we now know that dinosaurs use their tails as a counterbalance, and they actually held their tails stiff. So what God is describing to Job here sounds like an actual description of the way a sauropod would move. It, you could imagine it laying low among the reeds. Even to this day, again, we're not going to really get into this, but even today, there are legends and uh, folk tales and uh, even some eyewitness accounts of a creature called Mokeli Mabembi that lives in Africa, that, that lives in the swamps and is very hard to observe, but it lives low in the swamps and it, it sort of hides. And uh, so the description kind of matches what I'm saying is the description matches this behemoth. And when people describe it, they say it's got a long neck. Anyway, all that to say, behemoth very well could be a sauropod. It could be another creature like an ankylosaurus, something along those lines. But one thing it can't be is a hippopotamus. Now, someone might push back and say, look, Joel, this is describing a mythical creature. Here's why I don't, I don't buy that. The way that Job 40 starts off, God says to Job, he says, behold, behemoth, which I made with you, or which I made as I made you. It depends on how you translate that. If this were a mythical creature, why would God say that he made the creature and that he made it along with Job? 
that would be like, speaking of Lord of the Rings, that would be like someone saying, one thing I always try to avoid is a cave troll. You know, or if God were to come to you and say, I made the cave troll along with you, or I made the Balrog along with you. Sure, the Balrog or the cave troll, these are great images of evil, but they're not real. And if God were to say, I made these creatures or these entities along with you, man, God would not be telling the truth. But here we've got God saying exactly that about the behemoth. Now, does that mean that God is not communicating something very powerful? In this passage? No, of course not. He is using the behemoth to describe strength and might and awe. Absolutely. But he's using a real world example. And we're going to see that as we continue. So let's look at the next passage, which actually is in the very next chapter. And, and that is the Leviathan in Job chapter 41. Let's take a look at the Leviathan in, in Job chapter 41. Here's what it says. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Listen to this language. This is amazing. Will he make many pleas to you? Will he, will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, let's keep going. Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So you see, the Lord is using Leviathan to describe a creature in the kind of way that it'll draw Job's attention back to the Lord. He is using it in a powerful figurative way. But is he describing a purely mythical creature? I don't think so. Let's keep reading. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to the other that no air can come between them. They are joined one to the other. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. Now, at this point, you're reading this and you're going, okay, fine. Uh, here we've got an animal. It's clearly a reptile. It's got shields on its back, if you will, that that is figurative language is talking about the, the scaly skin on its back. You can picture like a, a horned lizard or a crocodile. In fact, maybe this is describing a crocodile because when you skip forward, it says his underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. So this is a creature that's, that's going through the mud, the, the area where the ground is very soft a little bit like the behemoth. He's clearly in some sort of swampy area. And then it says, he makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. So you read this and you're like, well, this sounds like a, a crocodile, something like that. And you know what? It, it might be. It might be a crocodile. But listen to this part that I skipped over. His sneezings flash forth light. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. 
Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Now, you read this, and you go, well, that sounds like a fire-breathing dragon. But then you look at the bottom of your Bible in the footnote, and you know what it says? It says this may be describing the way that a whale's fume or a whale's um, breath or whatever it's called, um, the, uh, the stuff that comes out of the blowhole, looks in the light. Okay, here's the problem with that. We're not talking about a whale because a whale doesn't have shields on its back. A whale doesn't have scaly skin, reptilian skin. A whale is not, yeah, they're, they're definitely dangerous, but I'm, I'm actually reading Moby Dick right now this year. Whales can be dangerous for sure, but whales aren't really described the way that the Leviathan is here. And a whale's breath, although it might look like steam or even smoke, if the light hits it just right, it can't kindle coals. It can't, it, it's not like burning torches. You might say, but Joel, but there's nothing that can do that. There's nothing that breathes fire. This is clearly mythological. Well, that might be true. It might not necessarily be true. If this is describing a mysterious, rare, or even extinct animal, like a, a aquatic reptile, similar to a dinosaur, although dinosaurs are technically land creatures, then for all we know, it very well may have had a mechanism that it could actually breathe out fire. Now, again, my son asked me this morning as we were talking about this, Jacob asked, what's the point of having the ability to breathe out fire if you live in the water. And, you know, I've wondered the same thing. Wouldn't it just come out as steam or smoke or wouldn't the water quench it? Yes, but this animal clearly can come up onto the land as well, or at least get pretty close to the land because it drags itself along in the mire and leaves a track and a trail in the mud. So this is this is at least an animal that can come up very shallow. It's a terror to people who sail in boats. No merchant would ever try to catch it. This very well may be describing something like a, a, a now extinct creature like a chronosaurus. Here in Job, we actually have eyewitness testimony as to what something like a chronosaurus may have looked like. And uh, again, we come back to it being able to breathe fire. That's not unprecedented in even the animal kingdom today. As a matter of fact, there's a bug called a bombardier beetle, which mixes chemicals together and shoots out a boiling hot spray. Perhaps a chronosaurus or another similar animal like that had this uh, a similar ability. If you were to look at a, a fossilized lightning bug, there'd be no way that you'd be able to tell that it had the ability to mix chemicals together in its abdomen and grow. Same thing with the bombardier beetle. For all we know, the chronosaurus or something similar had the ability to breathe fire. And the fact of the matter is we do have legends in history and accounts that seem to have some actual historical truth to them about animals that could breathe out fire, fire-breathing dragons. So am I saying I believe all those legends? No. Am I saying that there's uh, at least the possibility? Yes. And then when we read in Job, we get this description. What I'm saying is, as you read Job, as you read the plain description of what's going on here, the way that Leviathan is described among other animals, along with the behemoth, it sure seems like there was some sort of crocodilian, chronosaurus-like animal that could breathe out fire, and he didn't want to mess with them. And God was using this animal, a real animal, to describe a theological truth. So 
pretty cool. So much for that. Now let's move on because we're going to look at two more animals and we're going to cover these ones very, very briefly because the big ones I wanted to talk about are the ones in Job. I hope this has been encouraging to you. Now let's look at something called the fiery flying serpent. Speaking of fiery animals, we get a reference to um, the fiery flying serpent in two key passages, and they're both in Isaiah, Isaiah 14 and Isaiah 30. Let me pull those up. In Isaiah 14, 29, it says this, Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you that the rod that struck you is broken, for from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a fiery flying serpent. Now, here we are definitely talking about figurative language. The Lord is describing animals that seem to be getting progressively more deadly. You've got a serpent, a snake, and the serpent is giving is producing an adder, a deadly a venomous snake. And the adder is bringing forth a fiery flying serpent. Now, perhaps the fiery flying serpent just means a snake that moves really fast that gives a bad bite. Maybe. But if so, then there's not really a difference between the adder and the fiery flying serpent. But clearly the Lord seems to be progressing here from one dangerous thing to an even more dangerous thing. Well, what could he be describing? Could he be describing a mythical dragon? Maybe, but then he's talking about two real animals and then suddenly switching to a mythological creature that doesn't actually exist? I don't think so. I think probably what the Lord is describing here is he's using real-world animals to describe theological truths. He's incorporating them into his prophecy. So you've got a snake, you've got an adder, sort of a snake in general, an adder, and then something like a pterodactyl, a uh, pterosaur, a snake-like reptile with wings that either breathes out fire or has a poisonous bite. You get this mentioned again in Isaiah 30, verse 6, which says this is an oracle on the beasts of the Negeb. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, real animals, the adder and the fiery flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. What's going on here? We're not going to get into the whole context of this passage. That would take too long. But here we've got a number of real, actual, clearly visible animals. The lioness, the lion, the adder. Interesting that the adder is mentioned with the fiery flying serpent again. You've got the donkey, you've got camels, and you've got people all living together in a region, and then you've also got the fiery flying serpent. Again, if we presuppose that pterosaurs and pteranodons didn't coexist with man, then this can't be describing that. But if we presuppose that the Bible's timeline, that the Bible's depiction of what actually happened in history is true, and that the most clear, plain reading is that animals survived on the ark and then went out and lived in oftentimes desert areas, areas where they couldn't be bothered by human beings, it actually makes sense to think something like a pteranodon, a pterodactyl, a pterosaur lived in these wilderness areas where you would find camels and adders and other dangerous animals like lions. That actually makes a lot of sense. I'll grant you, not totally definitive, but pretty, pretty reasonable to think that we're talking about something like a pterosaur. 
You get one more mention of these fiery serpents in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Here's what it says. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. This is talking about the people of Israel. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the word, uh, against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. What's going on here? Dr. Brian Thomas from the Institute of Creation Research talks about this account in Numbers chapter 21. And he says something really interesting. He talks about how he had an encounter with a snake that sort of popped up out of nowhere. And he said that he was able, he describes it as, here's what he says. Most assume they were ordinary snakes. This is talking about Numbers 21. But that doesn't make sense of all the biblical data. If that were the case, couldn't the people have simply stepped out of the way? While descending a desert trail recently, my right foot came within an inch of a huge western diamondback rattlesnake. It is amazing how fast even an exhausted person can move when he suddenly encounters a venomous serpent. I imagine that the ancient Israelites were at least as agile as I am. This and other clues open the possibility that the animals in Numbers 21 were flying serpents. Okay, he says this in his book, Dinosaurs and the Bible. It's a little book. And I highly recommend that you check it out. It's only 77 pages long. So Dr. Brian Thomas, who I've had on this show, makes a really good point. If it was just snakes, why couldn't people just avoid the bites? What Dr. Brian Thomas thinks is that perhaps these are the fiery flying serpents that were mentioned in Isaiah, and they were a lot harder to avoid because they were attacking from above. That actually makes sense. It would also do a lot to explain legends of flying dragons, even fire-breathing dragons that we get throughout the historical and legendary record. Again, I'm not saying that's exactly what they were, but the evidence is pretty good. And if I had to lean on one side or the other, I would say we're probably talking about pteranodons or pterosaurs, at least in the Isaiah passage, because you have that word flying. We're probably talking about pteranodons, pterosaurs here. All right. Now, last creature that we're going to examine, last passage. And there's actually two passages here. We're looking at Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. And the key word here is ketos, K-E-T-O-S, ketos. In Jonah 1, 17, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, right there, you read that and you go, well, case closed. The Bible says it was a fish. Couldn't have been any kind of dinosaur. Couldn't have been a reptile of any kind. Here's the thing. The word for fish can mean fish. It can mean whale, or it can mean sea monster. So just because it's been translated as fish, traditionally, historically, doesn't mean that's necessarily what we're dealing with. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we have some very interesting light shed on this passage. In Matthew 12, 39 and 40, the Lord Jesus is describing what happened to Jonah. Here's what it says. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign 
of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But Jesus seems to be describing a fish as well, doesn't he? Not so fast. The word that Jesus uses is ketos. Kai, eta, ta, omicron, sigma. There we go, ketos. And that word had many meanings at the time when the Bible was written. It's a Greek word. One of the meanings that it did not have was whale. So whenever you hear that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, according to Jesus, it was not a whale. But Ketos did refer to something really interesting. There was this creature that was described in lore and in what we would now consider to be legends. It was a long-necked reptilian creature that lived in the ocean, that lived in the sea, that had a dog-like head. You, you see this on the, the front of old ships. Sometimes it's carved into the face of like a serpent with a dog-like head. And the word that was used to describe these creatures was ketos. It was a sea monster, a sea serpent with a dog-like head. Well, if you draw one of these ketoses, if you, if you take the descriptions and you draw them, or you take these depictions from ancient art, you know what you find? You know what they looked like? They looked a lot like a plesiosaur, a plesiosaurus. You know, the kind of thing that you see when people are talking about like the Loch Ness monster or something like that. Long neck, kind of a, a hideous dog-like face, fins, all that. So according to Jesus, Jonah was swallowed by something that could at least be interpreted as a sea monster with a long neck that looks like a plesiosaur. I don't know about you, but I find this absolutely fascinating. And even as I say these words, I'm feeling what you're feeling. There's a certain level of cringe. Why? Because we have been indoctrinated, and I do use that term intentionally, since our youth to believe that all these creatures, the Chronosaurus, the Apatosaurus, the Pterosaur, the Plesiosaur, these all lived millions of years ago, and they all died out long before man ever got on the scene. But then we open up our Bibles, and we see descriptions of them right there in the text. And we can try to write them off. We can try to describe them another way. We can say that they were just mythological, theological. But I don't think that makes the most sense out of the biblical data. Now, you've got to decide this for yourself. My job here is to give you tools to understand what the Bible teaches so that you can better defend your faith in the face of those who want to challenge it. And when you really think about it, what's the alternative? On the one hand, you've got these fantastic descriptions of dinosaur-like creatures in the Bible. You can believe that they were dinosaurs. I personally do. On the other hand, if you just can't get yourself there, then you have to think, What's the alternative? Do I adopt an old earth cosmology, even an old earth creationist cosmology, which doesn't make the best sense of the biblical data? Do I say that these creatures are purely mythological, which again, doesn't make the best sense of the data? Or do I just keep silent about it because I know that it's going to be challenged by those who believe in Darwinian deep time cosmology? That should not be an option for us. Because you know what that's called? It's called the fear of man. Fear of being challenged over what the Bible teaches 
is no reason to keep silent about it. Because the fact of the matter is, the Bible describes these things, and it doesn't do so in a vacuum. Because the same Bible that makes sense out of these ancient creatures, that gives these depictions that actually fit very well with the fossil record when you understand the flood, that actually make great sense of the historical record, and even the, dare I say, the mythological record. Once you understand that the Bible makes sense of these things, that very same Bible also makes sense out of our human condition. Because the God that created these giant sea creatures and these sauropods and these pteranodons is the same God that made you and me and the same God that commands us to be holy and to be righteous. And it's the same God in the same Bible that tells us that we are not, that tells us that we are sinners. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have sinned, we fall short of the glory of God, and that same Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So when we take the Bible as a cohesive unit, as a cohesive worldview, we see the connection between these ancient beasts and our own sin condition. But that same God that told Job that he was master and, and Lord of the behemoth and the Leviathan, that same God loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for wretched sinners like you and me. That is amazing. And the same Bible says that everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, repents of their sin, and believes in him, will be saved. We have a sure word from God in the scriptures. And whatever you think about ancient dinosaurs, whatever you think about what the Katos was or the behemoth was, one thing you can be absolutely certain of is that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of all the creatures on earth, and he's Lord of you and me. Matthew 28, 18 says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Jesus Christ. So there is a gospel connection here. I hope you can see that. I hope this has done something to help encourage you to articulate and defend your biblical worldview with your kids, with your coworkers, with that skeptic that you've been engaging with online, with the younger man that you're discipling, and uh, with the people in your local area. This is so important as we're striving to make a difference and pass on the gospel to the younger generation. So now you know what likely happened to the dinosaurs after the flood changed the climate, many of them died off, although many of them did continue to coexist with human beings before eventually being killed off and dying off as the climate continued to change. Did the flood destroy all the dinosaurs? No, it didn't. We have a sure word from God that he preserved two of every kind of unclean animal and a seven pair of every kind of clean animal. And then is Job, 4, Job 40 describing the, a dinosaur? Yes, I believe it is. Is Job 41 describing something like a chronosaurus? Yes, I believe it is. Is the fiery flying serpent a, an ancient form of pterosaur? Yes, I think so. And is the katos that swallowed Job, is that a uh, plesiosaur? That one I'm not as sure about, but if I had to lean on one side or the other, I think so. You be the judge. So now... Let me tell you about our online community. If this is the kind of thing that intrigues you and fascinates you, every single week, every single day in the Think Squad, we are discussing questions like this that will help you become the worldview leader that your family and your church need you to be. How do you get access to it? 
you simply go to facebook.com slash groups slash thinksquad, T-H-I-N-K-S-Q-U-A-D. Check it out. We're waiting for you there. Just answer the membership questions. That's all it takes. And hey, even if you have thoughts about this episode, I'd love to hear them. If you enjoyed this, share it with a friend and why not subscribe? And if you're watching on YouTube, hit that bell because we're going to be coming out with a lot more content like this. This episode has been produced by yours truly and is a production of the Think Institute. We are a Christian teaching organization that helps Christian laymen become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. And we are based by God's grace.